What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. Today's guest is Dan Porter, the co-founder and CEO of Overtime. Overtime is a sports media company that targets Gen Z and millennials. They currently do between $50 and $100 million in annual revenue, have 250 employees across the country, and recently raised $100 million in Series D funding. So Dan and I sat down to chat through how the company has expanded over the last six years, why he believes premium IP ownership is so important, and what might be next for the $500 million plus company. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dan, and I hope that you do also. But before we get into it, let's quickly run through today's sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Whoop. I've been wearing a Whoop for several years now, and it has made a massive difference in my life. It's the only tech product that I wear 24-7, so it's pretty cool to see people like Patrick Mahomes, Rory McIlroy, Michael Phelps, and Justin Bieber wearing one also. Whoop automatically measures your respiratory rate, oxygen level, resting heart rate, heart rate variability, calories, and activity levels throughout the day. Sure, it might sound complex, but Whoop interprets the data for you, so it's easy to digest and actionable. And now, their 4.0 is officially back in stock and shipping in real time. But here's the best part. Whoop is offering 15% off when you use the code Joe at checkout. Go to Whoop, W-H-O-O-P dot com and enter Joe, J-O-E, at checkout to save 15% and get free shipping. Sleep better, recover faster, train smarter, and now feel healthier with Whoop. Next up is MoonPay, the leader in Web3 infrastructure. Trusted by major crypto brands and millions of people worldwide, MoonPay is a portal to Web3, a place where you can transact with peers globally and own your digital identity. As blockchain technology continues to integrate with sports all across the world, teams and leagues are looking for simple solutions to unlock their digital markets. That's where MoonPay can help. Whether you are front office staff, a business executive, or a marketer, and you're looking to mint collectibles on the blockchain to create an NFT marketplace for your brand, MoonPay's technology can bring your digital strategies to life. So if you want to learn more, go to MoonPay.com slash Joe. That's MoonPay.com slash Joe. Next up is 8Sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer. And the 8Sleep pod is the ultimate sleep machine. 8Sleep has dramatically improved my daily performance. For me, I was never able to get a good sleep because I was always too hot. But now, I'm falling asleep in record time, faster than I've ever before. The pod is the only sleep technology that can maintain the optimal sleeping temperature for what your body needs. And it's not just me who sleeps on an 8Sleep. The product is so good that it's garnered the attention of CEOs, Olympians, UFC champions, and even the Mercedes F1 racing team. Even better, 8Sleep recently launched the next generation of the pod. The new Pod 3 enables more accurate sleep and health tracking with double the amount of sensors, delivering you the best sleep experience on Earth. The pod isn't magic, but it definitely feels like it. Go to 8sleep.com Joe to start sleeping cool this summer and save $150 on the pod. 8Sleep currently ships within the US, Canada, the UK, and select countries in the EU. Joe Pompliano runs Pomp Investments. All views of Joe Pompliano and his guests are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Pomp Investments. You should not treat any opinion by Joe or his guests as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his personal opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, let's get into this episode. All right, guys, I'm here with Dan Porter, who's the co-founder and CEO of Overtime, a sports media company, but also just a very large media company now. Dan, you guys just announced a $100 million Series D round. Congratulations. How are you? I'm feeling great, especially in this market. I'm feeling great. That is a good point. The market has obviously changed. I wasn't going to ask that first, but that's a good point. From when I assume you guys went out to go raise the initial capital to when the deal actually closed. 
Did that have any impact on the fundraising process? I'd be a liar if I said that it didn't have any impact on the fundraising process. And I think anybody who is in the market on either side of any deal sees that now. I think that there are people who are still focused on doing deals and there are people who are have kind of retreated to, to lick their wounds to some extent. So it has an impact on pricing for sure, has an impact on terms and where the balance of power shift. And it has the impact on, it's kind of like all things. It's like you jump into a market and things go crazy and then there's lots of investors and people at the edges and then all of a sudden they disappear because they've taken a hit. And it's not even that you necessarily need to work with those folks, but the landscape has definitely changed a lot. Yeah. And I'm assuming it feels pretty good now to have $100 million coming in and not have to worry about this for the foreseeable future. It feels good. And uh, we're very focused on making this last as long as we possibly can, maybe even forever. And look, I mean, there's an operational answer to that question, which is I'm the CEO of Overtime. Every time I spend an hour pitching overtime or trying to raise money, it's an hour I don't spend thinking about audience development and career development for our staff and everything else like that. And so I didn't start the company to be in the fundraising business. I might be good at it, but I'm also have lots of ideas and there's lots of things that I want to do internally. So just the freedom to be able to really think about that is enormously powerful, I think, for any CEO. Yeah. Just so people have context who may not be familiar with at least the fundraising side, I assume most people, if not everyone, is now familiar with Overtime. You guys are doing you know, billions of impressions. You have hundreds of millions of followers across all of social media. You've become one of, if not the largest players in sports media from a content perspective. Now you're doing a whole host of other things that we'll get into. But from an investor base, you guys have raised money. I know you know Kevin Durant, Drake, the bigger names early on. And then you guys recently, the $100 million round was led by Liberty Media and included Morgan Stanley's Counterpoint Global and others like that. Bezos Expeditions, Jeff Bezos' family office invested also. So some big names there. I want to talk about Liberty Media specifically. I think the average sports fan probably didn't know who they were five years ago or seven years ago or a decade ago. And now they hear their name all the time. The Atlanta Braves is certainly part of that. And it's one of the things that they've done in sports. But Formula One is another big part of that as a publicly traded company and as Liberty Media gets a lot of credit for how they've turned that around and, and really started to build that business. What value do you think they add to this picture, right? I'm assuming that was one of these, you know, they have the capital, they have the money, they have the resources, but there's also a strategic component to this where they can come in and they can help you guys maybe on some things that you're not as strong at or they have more experience in or things like that. Yeah, I, I think it, well, I think it's two things. One is I think people who have experience and success in sports have just a different lens to analyze this type of deal than a pure financial investor. So it means that they can see the trajectory, they can dig into certain aspects of the numbers, they can see the value there. So by that factor alone, that's hugely obviously influential in their decision. And I'd say that, you know, they have gone on record publicly as saying they want Formula One to go from being a racing business to a media business. And they've hired a lot of people from the media space. We're actually kind of going the opposite way, going from being a media business to being a sports IP owner. But I think that there's learnings, decision-making, all kinds of stuff like that. I think that they bring, obviously, a ton of value and kind of financial focus. And I think that there are other investors too who just 
I think when people ask you like the value of the investor, ultimately, if you have investors who tell you things that you don't know, like then maybe you're not as good a company or as good a CEO as you thought you were. I think it's more about the ability to have high level conversations than it is to elucidate some part of the world that was you know, mysterious to you. Because as a company, that's your job. You've got to hire that person to work for you or you've got to have that knowledge. But we're going to have to make strategic decisions along the way, not just about capital allocation, but about partnerships and expansion. And I think on hearing from them and the perspective being in two major sports is hugely valuable. And also like the level of relationships that they have is unparalleled. And look, obviously they've been, I mean, our whole premise, right, is that when we started in 2016, the average age of this kind of sports fan in the United States for the big four sports was 40s, 50s, average age of season ticket holder, 50s, golf, 60s. Six years later, that's that's still where it is, right? And so that's our huge opportunity. Formula One is crazy. I think it's in the United States, maybe even broader. Like the average age of the fan is in the 30s. And so to me, like that's super interesting. That's our market. I'm not trying to steal away a fan who is... 49 years old, who is set in their ways and passionate with what they follow. But I am trying to find the new generation of fans and give them something that's not on the market for them. And obviously, F1 has a huge and active young fan base. And that's super interesting. Yeah. So the one the one thing I would add to that, too, is I just looked it up. Liberty Media mentioned this on their earnings call, to your point. The average age of a Formula One fan has dropped from 36 years old in 2017 to 32 years old today. Right. And some of these other numbers may be outdated to some degree. And I'm sure the representative leagues would argue that they're lower, but data, whether it's two, three or four years old, the average age in Major League Baseball was 57 years old, NFL was 50, NHL was 49, and NBA was 42. Right. So you're attracting a much younger audience through that kind of media exposure game plan that they're obviously strategically implementing over at Formula One. And to your point, it's almost like you guys are going the reverse, right? You're growing up with your audience as they get older. They may have seen you on Instagram or YouTube or Twitter or now TikTok when they were 15, 16, 17, and maybe they're 25 and now they tune into one of these other games because they've watched you guys for so long. Is that the is that the correct way to kind of think about it? I think it's a really fair point and I think it's an accurate lens. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about Overtime Elite because for those that don't know, you guys were somewhat of a traditional-esque kind of media company, right? You had these large audiences. You were doing these highlight-style clips on social media. Well, we were we were digital first, not linear. Exactly. So traditional in that we made media, but yes. not traditional compared to traditional media companies. Didn't look the same necessarily, but yes, a media company. But now you have the live rights component, which is what you mentioned earlier, right? Where you're expanding and you're kind of going in reverse of Formula One, where you're adding live rights and adding IP to this business, where you have Overtime Elite, which is a basketball league. You're, you're paying people, right? So it's not amateur anymore. And they can come there. I, I forget exactly what the age is, but basically it's kind of at the tail end of high school before they go pro, maybe a little bit older. And they can play professional basketball for you guys. And it's this new league that you've started. So talk me through one, why you guys did that. And then I want to get into a little bit of like how it's gone now, because we talked a year prior and I don't think the league had launched when we previously spoke. Sure. So I, I don't describe Overtime as a media company. I describe us as a creator and owner of disruptive sports leagues and sports IP. Obviously, having 
the media leads to having the community. Having the community gives you a massive platform for audience development and to do those things. But, you know, when when other sports leagues come and say, will you be our media partner? I say, I want to own things. I don't want to just be an amplifier of other people's IP. And you're right. Like, there's a lot of fascinating things about overtime elite, how they're educated, how they train, what age they are. But at the end of the day, like the back of house stuff is interesting if you're interesting in sports. But the only thing that really matters is that we've built a league of a collection of some of the best 17 to 20 year old basketball players in the world. And they play live games and you can watch games and you can watch highlights and you can follow them. Everything else, how it's made is cool. And if you're deep into sports and that's interesting, but that doesn't make people watch it. What makes people watch it is you have an enormously exciting basketball product and you do an incredible job storytelling and you make them fall in love with the athletes and you have a high level of competitive basketball and it's fun. And I think that, you know, when you look at sports outside of professional sports, like in pro sports, sports teams have brands, right? I can tell you the Yankees, the Cowboys, the Raiders, like, you know what all those brands stand for. I could probably name you sports teams where you're just like, I know what city they're from, but do they really stand for anything? Do they have a brand? And there's college sports and college sports kind of have a brand, but it's really just linked to the college. Like it's hard for a single college to have that many fans, unless you're maybe Notre Dame, who didn't go to that college. Like you have a ceiling. If you are Marquette basketball, do you have a ton of fans who didn't go to Marquette? Probably not. And so I think our opportunity is somewhere in between where we're just not the name of a school, but we're building teams that have personalities and brands that are open for anyone to fall in love with them, that the ceiling is kind of infinite in that. And is a product that is differentiated and yet complementary to professional sports. And if you kind of drill down to the secret of overtime, shouldn't be giving away our secrets, but we really kind of told the story of athletes who our fans related to, and we told it to them in their own voice. And the world is filled with old people construct. You know what old people construct is? It's like, this is the third best team in Southeastern Pennsylvania. Oh, he's a five-star recruit. What school is he committed to? Like, these are all things that classically not young people think are valuable. Young people are like, I like that guy. He is like me. He's got a dream. I have a dream. I want to watch him play. It doesn't matter on the rankings and all those other things. And so that's the area where we've really played. And I think in our league, our fans see athletes who are striving to be elite like they're striving to be elite. And we kind of talk to them in a voice that feels relevant to them. And that's not meant to be negative about any other product in the market. It's just that's our differentiation and that's our market position. Okay. So how did year one go? Year one had ups and downs, to be honest. I'd say that we started in a fury. I mean, we raised money in April. We built a 1,400 person arena in four months. We brought a whole bunch of new The facility is crazy, right? It's like over 100,000 square feet. It's massive. Where is it? Atlanta, Georgia? It's in Atlanta. It's in Midtown Atlanta yeah. uh, near Atlantic Station. And so that was like, in some ways, it was amazing. In other ways, it's kind of like, I don't know what a good analogy is, like starting a new job during the pandemic. It's not the same as like starting a new job when you come into the office and meet everybody every day and stuff like that. And so operationally, it was a whirlwind. I'd say the hardest thing 
was actually like filling the venue on a Tuesday for a league that just started that nobody ever heard of. Even though we're really building a product for the internet, meaning that's who the fan is our, of our league. It's not city-based teams. You still need to have excitement in the crowd for the audience who's watching on the internet to have excitement. We figured that out, but we didn't figure that out on day one. I'd say, secondly, there are a lot of people who didn't want us to succeed, who would say that they wouldn't play us, who would tell teams and other players not to play us. And those are people from corporations who are involved in the sport to coaches to other things like that. And I, I kind of, you know, I would say over and over again, like, if there aren't people who hate us, then we're really not trying hard enough to do something different. But why do you think that they hate you just because it's disruptive to the current status quo and how things go? Right. If you're invested in the status quo and that's where you've built your career or your business, then you're not going to be happy about somebody doing something different, even if what they're doing it that's different is to the benefit of the young fans and is to the benefit of the young athletes. I think we were enormously blessed in that we attracted a staff of 70 to 75 people, including former NBA players like Ryan Gomes and Damian Wilkins, you know, guys like Kevin Ollie, who won the NCAA tournament, Dave Leto, who coached all throughout college. And those guys saw the vision and they signed on. And actually, when you're running up and down the court and you're playing a game and you're training teams and players to be elite, a lot of the rest of that is really noise. It's something that you have to deal with when every time you say something great happened and then you go on Twitter and 20 people who are invested in the college basketball ecosystem want to say negative things about you. But, you know, if they weren't saying negative things about us, I don't think we were trying hard enough to do something different. So I think it, it ended up exactly where it wanted to be. But it'd be very unrealistic to think the first game we ever played was incredible basketball in front of screaming crowds. It was kind of okay basketball in front of half crowds. But what mattered is that we got there at the end. Do you think you could have done this without the existing audience that you guys spent years building up prior to this? There's zero chance that we could have done this without the existing audience. Like if I go out and I do kind of like, hey, how did you hear about Overtime Elite and why are you a fan? 99% of the audience is like, well, I follow overtime and that's where I've discovered it. And so you've got not just the distribution side, but you've got the kind of muscle memory and the know-how on how to create and distribute digital content. And look, on Instagram, there are 351 D1 NCA basketball teams. We are larger on Instagram than 348 of them. There are 30 NBA teams were bigger on TikTok than 26 of them. Our ability to go out and use these platforms to connect with audience and to do your kind of classic top of the funnel, mid funnel, deep funnel and find them. You see something. Hey, what's that? You come, you learn. We start to talk to you, get sucked into our world and bring you down. We wouldn't have been able to do that without overtime. And I don't think I would have actually raised the money to do that without knowing that we had this whole media engine behind us. Yeah, probably even try, right? <laughs> that brings up a good point, though. Like, why do this from a live rights perspective, right? Because some people would probably just say that you guys could have continued to grow the media side of stuff, got more sponsorships, got bigger contracts, got bigger deals, become profitable if you weren't already, whatever, and built this nice big company out of it. Like, why do you think the live rights are so important to get you to where you want to go? I would say it's not even about the live rights. It's about being the IP owner. 
And so when you're a media company, you're essentially a pass-through entity. You're either buying somebody else's rights or you're covering someone else's rights. And so in a way, you know, if you're ESPN, you can build an enormous amount of value over time. You know, same for CBS, same for lots of folks. But the reality is, is that, you know, first of all, most of those deals are done. And second of all, I think we were like, we want, we don't want to just be an amplifier for what other people do. Like, we don't want to just be eating the crumbs at the table. Like, we want to make the table. Like, we want to own the IP. Like, you're on enough other side of the table that you start to say, like, well, I want to own the league. And you look at where we are, we have a massive deal with tops slash fanatics in the trading card space. I mean, we sold out, I think, in 80% of Target and Walmarts in the country. Like, that's because you are an IP owner. You have the partner there. You know, we have other media entities that are partners with us. We're talking about live rights that we can put all over the globe. We're talking about sponsors. We're talking about the stanchion, the place behind the net where you can sell a sponsorship, jersey patches. like. That's the type of business where it's just so much more upside than relying on other people's IP. And the funny thing is that, you know, people always say, oh, you rely on social platforms. What happens when Facebook changes their algorithm? What happens when something happens with Instagram? Well, shit, what happens when the NBA or the NFL or the MLB or FIBA or anyone else decides they don't want you to post their stuff anymore? You're kind of living in a whimsical world there as well, because they're always making decisions in their own self-interest as they 100% should. And so when you own your own sports property, you're, you're in control. Yeah. And I would also argue that now with IP that you guys own, right, you have the IP and you have the media side and all the other people in the world, the leagues that have that, most of them have a bigger presence than on the media side, but certainly I would argue know how to do it better and have built better systems and, and, content around that. So if the IP is is what's missing in that equation and they don't know how to do the other side or they're not as good of it, then you guys probably have a structural advantage there that maybe didn't exist before without the IP. Yeah. I mean, I would say, look, the NFL and the NBA are like ultra premium organizations run by smart people, enormously successful with really successful ownership groups too, right? So there's so much to learn there. They like every single sports league has a history. If you're going to change the number of games, are you going to have an asterisk at the home run record after that? You know, like there's a lot of, and they, they innovate all the time, but you've got, you know, if you go to another country and you try to sign in to watch your league pass or your season ticket, you can't because there's rights chopped up and there's legacy and everything else like that. And that's a huge part of why they're successful, but it makes it harder to maneuver. And and that's not a, criticism. It's just, it's a fact anywhere. Every college has, it makes it harder to maneuver. You're not going to eliminate the English department after you've had an English department for all these years. And so for us, we just, we can learn from the best, but we also come at it with a blank slate and we're laser focused on who our fan is. And if our fan is, you know, the digital first Gen Z millennial, probably first phone was a smartphone played video games, very different than maybe me and how I grew up. That allows you to tailor aspects. And we don't just own a team, we own the whole league. You know, I I say this in a massive exaggeration because we're not going to do it. But if we decide the best time to play games is Tuesday night at two in the morning, then we're playing games at Tuesday night and two in the morning. Like that's the leverage that we have in that sense. Yeah, that makes sense. 
how about TV rights for the league, right? Because I think when people think about the league's distribution, one side would say that it's massive advantage to have an open network with the ability to reach millions and millions and millions of people like you guys are currently doing. You have this built-in fan base and distribution. How do you think about maybe closing that off to some degree through a TV partner or someone like that, that may be able to bring in more money initially at least, but maybe put some handcuffs around kind of what you guys are able to do from the social perspective? Yeah, it's it's an excellent question. I'd say that as we've had people approach us about media rights, we've thought about only kind of game packages as opposed to a whole season so that we can have distribution for our fans. We do enormous amount of kind of discovery, meaning if half a million people watch the championship game, hundreds of thousands of those people have watched it in the six months since it's happened in that kind of classic YouTube style. And so we want to be in a position where the live audience gets to watch something that's live, but there's still discovery for the audience because, hey, they just found out about this player and they want to see some of their games and stuff like that. So I think it's a it's a balancing act. And I would also say that from the very beginning, we didn't just want to talk about tonnage and hours. Like we were like, this is a league and everything is a valuable. The behind the scenes is valuable. The follow doc is valuable. The hard knocks of OTE is valuable. It's not just about the live game. And obviously live sports rights drives television viewing, but there's a lot of aspects that our audience likes to watch that are not, that are on demand and that are not synchronous. And we think about it as a whole bundle and a whole package together rather than just literally hours of live games. So it's likely if you see us do some type of hypothetical deal in the future, it won't just be the games, but it'll be other forms of content as well. Yeah, gotcha. That makes sense. And and when you're talking through those things, you guys probably know better than anyone else what the audience desires from that perspective, right? Because you're already creating a lot of this content to some degree. So you have an idea how valuable it would be on the back end for, you know, we'll call it under 35 audience and the people that are monetizing it through through ads or whatever they're doing. I would say we we have a really good sense of that, but you know, my job as a CEO is to reiterate to our team that that changes all the time, like people's patterns and the way that young people change and, you know, introduction of TikTok or the iPhone or a, he- a VR headset from MetaQuest or anything changes people's patterns. And so you can never assume like, oh, I got it. I got it. I know what this generation wants because the second you know what they want, they decided, you know, something else. And so it's really the, the ability and the flexibility to stay on top of that and to honestly empower kind of a younger generation to get behind the camera for us too. Yeah, that brings up a good point. And something I want to talk about is just like social media in general right? Because for those that don't know, I think you guys were founded in 2016, right? Correct. And things have changed a lot since then. And, you know, you had the system, I believe, where you were doing, you were having people record the, the highlights of the games in the in the arenas, and then they would upload them, and you guys would put them on social and all these things, right? But now the world has even changed to a large degree. I don't even know if TikTok existed then, or it certainly wasn't as popular as it is today. And that's all short form stuff. And YouTube has changed a lot of their stuff to cater towards short form. Instagram is doing more video stuff too now. And like this whole dynamic has changed. You guys, I still believe are seen as like that company that's at the force of all of this when it comes to sports. 
and you're seen as that business that really knows the younger generation, the younger demographic, and all those things. But to be fair, a lot has changed since the founding of the company, right? Six years, the way things are presented, the way people consume things have changed. How do you think about this going forward? Like, is short-term stuff going to be here a decade from now? Is this going to look way different? Is this something you guys actively plan for every day? Do you just adapt as things come up? Like, I, I just want to chat through kind of how you think about social in general. Yeah, you can't, sure, you can have an advantage because... You can be on TikTok or Instagram, or you can make a website before anybody knows what the World Wide Web is or anything else like that. But everybody catches up. They're not dumb. They can hire people who work for me if they want to, to some extent. But I think what it comes down to is the power of the brand, to be honest, and the permission your audience gives you to do certain things. And so... When you use your brand and your community to build, you know, a really strong community of like-minded individuals, then you have a relationship with them and you say, I want to do this crazy stuff, you know, theoretically, and, and they accept that. There's things that we do that maybe if Major League Baseball did them, people would be like, that's weird and that's corny and I don't get it. And why are they doing that? And so I think that that's, that's really clear. And ultimately, at the end of the day, if we are successful, we're successful because we have partnered with and empowered our audience to act. And I think that you see many examples of that. I mean, that's kind of somewhat the basis of Web3 and other things you see, you know, throughout history, musical artists and other people who have massive fan clubs who will collect music and trade with each other. And, and being in partnership with the audience, what I would call almost like a fan first mentality, is just is a really different mentality. Traditional media and rights in the United States is like, we're on television. Your job is to sit on the couch and watch it and maybe you buy a ticket and maybe you buy a jersey. And I say, that's great. You guys are billion dollar businesses. You should do that. And you're killing it at that. That's not my opportunity. Like I have to find a point of differentiation. And my differentiation is what I think about every day is how do I shrink the distance between what our sports league is and who the fan is? And, you know, to give you a, an example, which is almost metaphorical, like at the end of an overtime elite game, I asked the winning team of players to walk around and shake hands with people in the audience or dap them up or anything else like that. Because if you're 15 years old and you paid $7 a ticket to come see and some seven foot guy who might be in the NBA is like, thanks for coming to the game, my guy, and daps you up. Like, you're like, I'm a fan. Like, that's incredible. And I say it's a metaphor because we have to figure out how to do that digitally too. And that's the challenge. But that's really the opportunity where I think we can excel and just be differentiated. And that's not a criticism of other people. It's just, you have to find where your market space is in any business and you have to differentiate and you have to know, know where that space is. And that's what we focus on. I love that idea. It's almost like the whole notion that you should answer every DM that you get. Yeah. Right? It's like, so we answered 2 million of them in the first couple of years between DMS and comments. It's yeah. completely not scalable. Nobody else can do it. It's hard to train five people to sound like they're talking from the same company. And like literally, like literally today, somebody who I work with texted me like half an hour before this call 
And they said, this was like a DM to overtime. Yo, overtime, who's running this page? I want to talk to the CEO. Is that Dan? He's my guy. He's a legend. I need to meet Dan. Do you want to have a hangout and a Zoom with Dan? And I'm like, I'm a nice guy, but I don't know if I'm the best representative of the brand. But they bother to figure out my Instagram handle is Overtime CEO. They can figure out who I am. And yeah, I'll get on and talk with some of the fans because every fan you make is a path to 10 more fans. You get them to be passionate about you. They're the ones who tell their friends, like, this is legit. You should pay attention to that. And it does scale in some ways over time. I love that. That's amazing. I want to talk lastly about what's next, right? I know you guys have started a seven-on-seven high school football league, OT7. And I think that you've mentioned previously you might venture into other sports. Yeah. What does that look like, right? Like, is it just going out and and creating more high-level IP? Is it focusing on what you've already built now? Just talk me through kind of how you think about the next steps. Yeah. So the the seven-on-seven league, it's not high school. It's their basically club teams that they play in the spring. So they're actually usually an assemblage of the top recruits in the nation. I think 400 athletes played on 20 teams and 280 of them had D1 offers. But they all go to different schools and they come and they create these super teams of of guys who are a year or two away from essentially being the future stars of college football. I think for us, it's not that we're interested in high school sports or in we're interested in in that audience. And certainly there's less friction sometimes in the high school space. And there's also the opportunity to find players who are similar. But I wouldn't say in the in the things that we're looking at going forward in terms of sports and sports leagues, none of them have anything to do with high school. They have to do with athletes who are probably 18 to 24. And it's really more about kind of like, do I get a chance to watch sports leagues in anything, golf, tennis, boxing, basketball, football, any of those things where I'm watching people who kind of look like me who are my peers and who might be superstars in two years. And sometimes they're in high school and sometimes they're in college and sometimes they're in neither. Like the where they come from part is immaterial, but I think that's kind of from the audience segment where we stand. And then when we look at the opportunity, we say, is there an opportunity for athlete empowerment? Is there some aspect of the athlete journey that's been underserved that we can help them be better served on? And are there amazing and compelling stories? And so I don't think we're gonna launch 20 leagues because that would be impossible and too expensive. But I think there are other sports, both individual sports and team sports that have nothing to do with high school and college, but where there's opportunities. And that's where we're gonna focus. And I'd say the last thing is, when I think about it, I think about, is this a sport that anyone in the world can be flipping through Instagram or TikTok or Twitter, and they see it and they're like, oh, I know what that sport is. Not a sport you have to teach somebody about, not a sport that they don't know the rules for, not a niche sport, but a massive sport. You know, I'm not going to say we're going to do anything in tennis, but tennis is an obvious example because anywhere in the world you see somebody hitting a tennis ball with a racket, you're like, oh, that's tennis. You know, you might not even be able to name a player, but at least you know the gist of that sport. And then that becomes the foundation that you build on. I love that. I love that. That's a great idea. The last question I have is, and I'm only asking this because I saw you had a comment about that this business is now way bigger than you initially envisioned it with six people running an Instagram account, you told Bloomberg. What did you think that the business was going to be like? Like, I'm assuming you thought it was going to get bigger and you were going to try to scale and you were doing all that. And, and, and I get that. But 
Did you envision live rights? Did you think this was going to be a completely different model? Just like everyone has an idea of what they envision kind of things will turn out. And, and we all know that usually that's not the case. But I would love to hear just kind of what you thought in the first place and where we are today. The honest answer is I never envisioned it being where it is now. This is like not at all. From a size perspective or just the type of business, like the model? Both, honestly. Like I just knew that there was an opportunity where everybody from sports leagues to broadcasters was like, we need to get younger. We need to get younger. And I think we thought, oh, we can solve that. Like Zach had his experience. I had my experience running digital at Endeavor. And so we went out and solved it. And we were like, you guys are bummed out because you wonder where the young sports audience is. Here, I stretch out my arms and I got it for you on a plate, mass of tens of millions of them. And I think what I found was that, like, I just assumed people were going to be like, okay, you're great. You raised some money, you got a little team, you figured this out, you built a brand. Like, let's go. Either they're going to buy us or do a huge partnership with us. And that was going to be the nature of it. And what happened was that nobody did. Like, they couldn't get their act together to figure out how to buy us or to understand why we did was valuable or they thought they could copy us or they had all kinds of other things. And I think in that inflection moment, I went from saying like, oh, okay, well, I built a live event ticketing company and I sold it to Ticketmaster because they were the biggest and we had a hole in the market that they didn't realize. I built a mobile games company and I sold it to Zynga because same thing, they were big on Farmville, but they didn't have mobile. Like that's what bigger companies do is they understand where they've kind of fucked up or they didn't take advantage of opportunities and they buy startup companies and they plug them in. And I just assumed that would happen here. And I think when it didn't happen, well, certainly I was disappointed because that was kind of the plan to some extent, but I was like, oh shit. Like, it's not just that they're not doing the deal. Like they're not actually taking advantage of the opportunity to its fullest. And so I could say like, why aren't they all running to be in business with me? But maybe the reason is that they they don't understand the thing that we understand. And so that's actually a much bigger opportunity than I thought. And that kind of allowed us to, to double down. And I think it was really understanding the transition from like, we're a media company. Like when we started, I was like, we're like ESPN for young people. Cause that's really easy to understand. Everyone understands what that is when you're in an investment pitch. But the reality is, is like, we're not actually, what we are is a massive community. Like we have more in common with like, a deadhead or a Travis Scott fan base or something else like that, where there's just an incredibly or a massive subreddit or Wall Street bets, like where you have these massive communities where people come together and share interest. And then the question is, like, if you bring this massive community together, what do you do? And it's not about monetizing them. And if they're telling you, like, we want more, 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 well, you build a sports league on, on the back of that community. And so I think it was a it was an evolution of our thinking that was both a combination of our own success, but how people outside reacted to us. That was a great answer. I just figured it was because you went to Drake's house and then you said, oh, I'm in this thing now. <laughs> I can't, I can't I stop. I mean, I wish Drake's an investor, but like, it doesn't hit my line. <laughs> Some of the other folks do. You know, you, you look at the cap table, it's like NBA <laughs> players. Some of them I talk to fairly often. Carmelo Anthony is like, a genius and one of the funniest people I know. And I love talking to him. Other people are like, oh, you're in business with so-and-so. I was like, yeah, kind of. Yeah, kind of. So I don't hang out with Drake. I've hung out with Quavo a lot. He loves hooping and he's hilarious. And he's in Atlanta. We're in Atlanta. We want to be viable there. 
So, you know, it's a mixture, but I think the secret to all startups is what you start out with actually isn't an idea, it's just a premise. And as you test that premise and you look for what they call product market fit, well, the the market changes around you as well. Like the last thing I'll say is like, we started, everyone's like, you're gonna end up as a streaming service. Are you gonna go direct to consumer with OTE? And it's like, shit, look at HBO Max. They can barely afford to go direct to consumer. Like, no, we're not. But five years ago when Netflix was the only player, everyone thought was that. So you're not just only paying attention to like what's happening inside your office and with your audience, you're paying attention to everything that's happening in the world. 2016, there was no TikTok. There were no 10 other streamers. There was a WWE saying, oh shit, we're, we're just going with Peacock. Like we're pulling the plug on our own thing. Like there was no COVID changing the nature of sports participation. So you just have to like, my job isn't just to get the money, but it's just to listen. I read your newsletter. I do, I do a lot of things to try to make sure that I understand what's going on in the world. And that becomes a massive factor. And I think when people are successful, they're good at that. And sometimes when they fail, they're not able to pay attention to that. Yeah, I would agree. And I think that that goes back to what I was saying previously about like, just so many things have changed in the last six years since the business was founded, right? It seems like you guys took kind of that generation and, and you guys were at the forefront of it and everyone still points to that today. But even if you just zoomed out for a second, you said like, look, the landscape that Overtime started with is drastically different than it is today. Their business looks way different than it did previously. And I think that's a lot of credit to you as the operator, right? To your point, not only bringing in the cash, but setting the direction of kind of where things need to go and seeing opportunities that maybe other leagues or other executives or other teams didn't see. Yeah, look, I think about this all the time. In 2012, I sold my company for $200 million. I made an iPhone game that at the time of sale was on nine out of 10 iPhones in the world. And when we started the company, the iPhone didn't exist. So the first business plan for our gaming company wasn't like, we're going to make a hugely successful iPhone company and sell. It's like, we're going to make Flash-based games on the World Wide Web. Like, so shit happens around you. And if you're just good at being fast and paying attention and adapting and you know what your core values are and you have a community, you can take advantage of it. I would say that you've been hanging out with young people too much because you just flexed on all of them, Dan. But I love that. <laughs> that was amazing. I feel like I like hanging out with young people. They uh, they are less cynical and incredibly optimistic about what could happen. And I need that in my life. That's a fair point right there. All right, Dan, thank you so much for doing this. I assume I would usually end these and I tell people, I ask where they can find you, but you already said your Instagram, Overtime Dan. Overtime CEO. Overtime CEO, sorry. TFADP is my general tag or Overtime CEO on any of those places. Or they can find me in Brooklyn. And then if they want to find Overtime. Yes, Overtime is just at Overtime on every single platform. Don't go to a website. No, no, no real company has websites. Just find us on- You guys don't have a website? Somewhere we do. I think it's just like a looping video. Yeah. Yeah. Website's unnecessary for a, a company in the 21st century digital. But thank you so much, Dan. This was a lot of fun. And maybe we'll do it again next time when you guys launch a new league or you do something else that's exciting and, and fun. That would be awesome. All right, everyone. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And as always, I appreciate you listening to The Joe Pomp Show. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify so that you don't miss any episodes going forward. And if you are looking for additional content, check out my daily newsletter at readhuddleup.com or follow me on Twitter at Joe Pompliano. I hope you have a great day and I'll see you next time.